Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new or visiting Metro Presbyterian Church uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series about the life of David, the gospel according to David. And uh, it's perha- David is perhaps a single most documented ancient historical figure in world history. And so it's important that we study him because the Bible speaks so much about David. And before we get into that, though, I really wanted to get into addressing the whole point of talking about the life of David. David was the greatest king of Israel. And there are many prophecies since the time of David of a greater king, one who would come to whom David himself points, and that's Jesus Christ. So it's very important to study the life of David because David himself was a mere shadow of Christ. If you're interested in learning about Christianity, if you're interested in growing about Christianity, growing in Christianity, or uh, you have to know that the Bible is littered with references about David as one who points to Christ. And of all the passages that talk about Jesus being the king and connecting him with David, uh, the throne of David, this is probably one of the most famous. It's Isaiah chapter 9. So we're going to learn three things today about how the coming of the king, the coming of Christ, gives us courage, how you get courage, and what are the implications of Christ coming into your life with courage. So how the coming of the king, the coming of Christ, gives us courage, how we get courage, and the implications of Christ giving us courage. First, how the coming of Christ gives us courage. Notice how many references... uh, Well, let's go into the references directly. If you look here uh, in verse 1, Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Think about your basic fears. Darkness. A lot of people are afraid of the dark. Especially when you're a child, you're afraid of the dark. It can be very, very embarrassing as you grow older because you always need a nightlight when you're afraid of the dark. But what happens? Then there's Christmas. And what's Christmas? You look forward to, as a child, you look forward to Christmas, especially if you're afraid of the dark. Why? Because wherever you are, no matter where you are on any street, 
there's light. Every room in your house, or at the least, every room in your neighbor's house shining into your bedroom window, there's light. There are lights on every window. And of course, you know, in the living room, there's a tree, and that's always radiant around Christmas time. So there are lights everywhere, every room, every hallway, there are little lights. And so if you're a child afraid of the dark, the light that's come in allows you to sleep without fear. And the text here is saying that the coming of Christ can shed light on every part of your life, the whole of your life. Wherever there's darkness, there's fear. And wherever there's fear, the coming of Christ gives light. So you can live in the whole world where otherwise there'd be darkness. You can live in the entire world without fear. Now, what is the fear that the author here, Isaiah, is actually talking about in verse 1? He's actually talking about the fear of death. The first time he says the people walking in darkness, he doesn't really tell us what that darkness is. But in verse 1, he says people walking in darkness. And then he goes on and he says, on those living in the land of the shadow of death. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry... Hebrew poetry is written in stanzas, so in your Bibles you'll see that there's an indentation. In the first stanza, which is the first set, the two lines, you have a statement, and then the second statement right after it is the same statement as the first. It's always a repeat, but it tells you a little bit more about that first line. It gives you a little bit more of the nuances. So in other words, it's read as parallelism. The same thing in one stanza is written twice. It's to show you the nuances. And here you see that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light has dawned. Literally, if you read it in Hebrew, it says the people walking in death darkness, and they're distressed, there's gloom, they're afraid. What this passage is telling us is this. All human beings live in the shadow of death all the time. Another way of saying it is death The concept of death, the knowledge of death, casts a shadow on everything in your life. Death is the greatest struggle that we will ever have throughout our lives. Now, some of us say, oh, that was, this is ancient times, right? So this is people back then, there was a fear of death. It's different now. Times have changed. Back then, people were dying all the time. They were dying in droves. They died when you were young. That's why people had lots of fam- big families. We still have some of that in our culture, embedded in our culture today. That's important to have a big family. But the reason why they did that back then was because 50% of the children would die off. So it was important to have large families. That's why they had so many children. The death rate was incredibly high. Most astute commentators will tell you that in our day today, we're even more haunted by death. We're even more darkened by death than we've ever done in any civilization that's ever existed in all time. How is that? For instance, on one hand, if you live in a modern society, you're less likely to come into literal contact with dead bodies. I mean, how many times have you seen a dead body in your lifetime today? Probably not that much. Certainly not as much as the ancient days. More than any other time in the world, we have caretakers who take care of the dead. We take, it's, a, it's a process now, a business process. When you're dying, you go to a place. Well, first, when you're sick, you go to a place. When you're dying, then you go to another place. And then when you're dead, the experts take care of the dead body. So we, we come less in, we're li- less likely to come to literal contact with dead bodies. However, the death rate really has not changed. It has not changed the death rate in human society. It's still one death per person. The death rate has not changed. Everyone's going to die. 
And commentators today say that the one key difference today from the ancient days is this. Societies back then knew how to deal with death better. They addressed death better. Today's society is the first, civilization, the first society in all civilization that's lost the certainty of life after death. We've gotten rid of that certainty. Every other civilization, every other society throughout world history understood the concept of life after death. But in our civilization today, in our society today, we've lost that. Every other civilization believed that after you die, there's a possibility that you could have greater fulfillment, a greater joy, a greater life, greater options, greater freedom, greater love. But, and, and these were older societies, right? Older societies, they were dying of the plague, there were pandemics all throughout society. They were not as dominated by the fear of death, even still, even though they saw people dying all the time. Why is that, right? If you look at famous commentators and what they're saying, if you were to boil it down, if you see an old movie that came out in the 90s, old movie in the 90s, I mean, if you see this movie, Brad Pitt was a star, so maybe some of you guys saw it, Meet Joe Black, I'm going I'm to kind of sum up what all philosophers today are telling us about death. Imagine you have a day off. Imagine that, right? On your day off, what do you do? You do things that are really meaningful in your life. You do things, you want to do things that are meaningful in your life. You want to do things that make you happy. So what do you do? Well, you're going to go, you're going to pull out your favorite book or magazine. And you're going to take it to your favorite coffee shop. You're going to take it to Ultimo Coffee, right? Or you're going to take it to Starbucks. Or you're going to take it to uh, Hubbub. And you're going to order your favorite espresso, maybe a double shot. And after you read, you're going you're to walk over or you're going to jog over to Kelly Drive. And you're going to jog down Kelly Drive beautiful scenic scenic it's beautiful it's sunny out it's pleasant you're going to jog down kelly all the way around the art museum area you're going to put on um, you're going to carry your ipod because your ipod is going to tell you how much you've run and you're going to set the settings for that and you're going to turn on music you're going to turn on spotify and you're going to have your jogging playlist on those are the things that you look forward to because that's what gives you a sense of fulfillment that's what gives you a sense of peace and rest in life your favorite music, your favorite book, your favorite cafe, with your favorite coffee. It gives you a sense of culture and sophistication. And you're running in scenery, so you feel connected to nature, and you feel all, is life, is, all, at life, all of life is at harmony with the world. Now, imagine, I'm going to ruin the picture now, okay? Imagine a man comes up to you with a gun. He points it to your head. And he says, you will die today. Today, there's no escaping it. Today, you will die. You can't negotiate with me. You can't argue with me. You cannot plead for your life because today, at the end of the day, your life will be taken from you. But I'm going to be a little bit more fair to you before I take away your life. I'm going to give you the last four hours of the day. It's two in the afternoon. You will die by dinner. I'm going to give you the last four hours to enjoy your life. What I want you to do is I want you to go to your favorite cafe, order your favorite coffee, Read your favorite book. I want you to go down Kelly. I want you to jog with your favorite playlist on. And I want you to enjoy these last few hours of life that you've got. What would you say? You know what you're going to say? I'm going to tell you what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, I know I can't negotiate with you, but I'm probably not going to enjoy that book. 
I'm probably not going to enjoy that coffee. I'm probably not going to enjoy that cafe. I'm probably not going to enjoy the jog. I'm certainly not going to enjoy the music that's playing. He's going to ask, why? I'm giving you the time. And you're going to say, you know why? Because the inevitability of death makes all things that are ordinary and good in my life meaningless. That's what you're going to say. Modern philosophers say that every bit of happiness you desire today, today's philosophers will tell you that every bit of happiness that you enjoy, you have to cram it into this world because in these 75 years or so, it's all you've got. So you've got to cram it in. Everything you ever wanted. That's why we're so obsessed with pleasure. That's why we're so obsessed with sex and power. You want a love that lasts? You want a life that's meaningful? You want to work that's going to make you feel like you made a difference in the world? If this life is all there is, think about it, and there's nothingness after, then everything in your life, even now, right now, is meaningless. You're going to die. There's this undercurrent, this underlying fear of death, fear of what's afterwards. You've no certainty. So, you know, you've no certainty that any part of you, even a small part of you, is going to continue on after you die. Or, or what you've left behind, your work, your love, your learning. Where does it all go? What do you enjoy? Even the things that you've enjoyed, where will it go with you? The ancient Egyptians used to bury the greatest belongings of a person with them in the grave. They would entomb them with the very things that they pursued all their lives. Where does it go? Because you know what? Thousands of years, we dig these things up and we get rich by it. They're sitting in museums today. Where does it all go? If these philosophers are correct, that we have to live heroically today in the face of the fact that life is absurd and life is meaningless because death is the end and there's nothing afterwards, if these philosophers are correct that life is meaningless, or maybe they're miscalculated, and if they've miscalculated, then life has been miscalculated. Because if there is some kind of an afterlife, then it actually depends on how we live today. Our lives today have meaning. And if you've miscalculated that, you've miscalculated everything about your life. And if nobody can be sure, you know, how can you not live? If you can't be sure about what's happening afterwards, how can you not live with the shadow of death looming over you, casting over you all the time? Ernest Becker in 1975 He was a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author. Actually, the Pulitzer Prize he won was for the book Denial of Death. I think there was a quote printed in your bulletin today. Um, And basically what he says in the entire book, it's an incredible book, um, recently been reprinted. People are starting to buy it again, ironically. People are starting to buy it and read it again. He says the reason why the Western culture is obsessed with sex and romance and physical beauty, all things today that are meaningful to us, right? He says, all civilization, in all other civilizations, sex, money, and politics, it was always important. Those things were never unimportant. But only in today's society is it all important. Is it all there is. There's never been a more materialistic culture than we have today. A culture that's more obsessed with pleasure and money and sex. Why? He says, he literally says it. He's not a believer. He says, it's the shadow of death. It's because we're the first culture to believe that we have to cram everything that we've got in this world today, everything that you could ever experience, you have to cram it into this life. And so the main way, the main way to feel personally significant is uh, to value the things that make you feel significant. 
So I have to get sex. I have to, I have, to have power. I have to have wealth. I have to rise in my career. No matter, how, no matter what it takes for me to get there, no other civilization deals with the shadow of death today or in, in all history more than our society today. When young people, they saw people dropping dead 100 years ago, left and right, family members, brothers and sisters dropping dead left and right, they probably thought more about death than we do today. That's what Becker says. They were forced to. They had to. They had to deal with the important questions then. Today, we're just frantic. We're just frantic. We don't want to deal with death. And in actuality, our desire not to deal with death is us dealing with death because that is the one thing that is certain in our lives. Christians, they believe this. In spite of the fact that there's darkness all around, in spite of the fact that there's a shadow of death all, all around, because we believe that Jesus Christ came from another world, born into this world, and died on the cross to pay for our sin debt, the one debt that was owed by all of human race, that's the reason why we die, that is the only death that could ruin us. That is the only death that would bring us into true nothingness. That is the only death that could actually ruin us altogether. But Christ already paid that debt. And so when we die, there's no fear. There's no fear of death. And when you don't fear, fear death, you know, death is only a shadow. A shadow can't hurt you. When you don't fear death, you don't fear anything. You don't fear anything. Christians, they know they don't need to fear death because as terrible as it is, death no longer has any power over them. When they die, it brings them into something even newer than they are today. That's what Christians believe. So they don't fear death. They don't fear anything. In a time when Christians were being persecuted in droves, they didn't fear. They, they, went, to the, they went to their own crosses singing hymns. There was, no, there was certainty in their life. They don't fear anything. They were less attached to money, so they gave radically. They were less attached to, to sex. So as a result, they loved people genuinely. Even the shadow of death doesn't loom over their lives. That means you can live in this dark world, but because you believe in Christ, a light has dawned. All the shadows in our lives, all the dark corners in our lives, there's a light that can dawn there because the king is here, and he didn't come despite your brokenness. You know, it's not like you have to clean yourself up and make it seem like there's light there. He came into the brokenness. He came into the darkness. He came into the places where we fear. And he sheds light there. There's no dark corners. That means you can walk around any part of the world at any time, any century, any decade, any situation without fear. There's light. You're not going to be obsessed with self-preservation. You're not going to be obsessed with, uh, with romance. You know, self-significance, self-worth. There's no underlying fever of fear. There's nothing frantic. You're going to be poised. You're going to have courage. The coming of Christ in this text, the coming of the king, he, the greatest command, command that Jesus and God ever issued to his people, it's issued more times, it's uttered more times, the one phrase that's uttered more times than any other phrase uh, or any other command in the Bible is what? Fear not. Be not afraid. Fear no evil. Fear no darkness. That's the first point. Now, how do you get it? How do you receive it? The rest of this text 
is about the fact that light has come into your life. And when, it life has come into you, when that light has come in, it comes with power. But the thing is, you can only receive it as a gift. You can't earn it. If you try to earn it, you don't get it. It's just going to create darkness in your life and greater fear. The language all throughout the text is about a gift. For to us, a child is born. It's been given. It's merit. A gift versus merit. For example, in verse 4, he talks about this. He says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. That's what he says. He refers to a time when God, he delivered his people from the Midianites through Gideon. Gideon, who was Gideon? In the book of Judges, Gideon was a judge. Gideon assembled a large army to fight against the Midianites. And God looked over that army, the best of the best. And what did he do? He whittled it down to almost nothing. God made Gideon send the entire army home before God himself defeated the Midianites. And it was to show Gideon that salvation never comes through your human might, through your ability, through your power, through your talents, through your strategic military uh, awareness, but only through the power of God and through his grace. That alone. Grace alone. Then you look at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle. This is amazing, by the way. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What is he saying here? Isaiah is saying that take your warrior's boots, take your military gear. You're in a war. You're in a battle. I want you to take all the military gear, all your weapons, all your arsenal, and I want you to burn it up. That's what he says. You don't have any need for it. Ultimately, the language gets down to this. For to us, why? Why does he say you do that? He says, you don't have to fight. Burn it all up. Everything that you've ever put into the battle to say, yes, I can win. I can get through life on my own. You're just addressing the fear of death. And you're going to lose if you do that. He says, I want you to live life gathering up all these things and just throwing them into the fire. Why? Verse 6. For, that means because... To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It's a gift. Who is this child? Who is this son? He calls him the mighty God. Isaiah says something very remarkable. The mighty God, the mighty God was born. The mighty God, the ultimate treasure, was given. Was given over. That's basically what he's saying. In other words, salvation, access to God, God himself is a gift. He's a gift because a mighty God was born, not because God showed up, not because he gave us vision, not because he came and he gave us all these messages and enlightened us. God himself was born into history. Isaiah is saying that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came physically. Literally, he came literally. He came physically. In 1 John chapter 1, the author says, we saw him with our eyes, we felt him with our hands. Isaiah says God was literally born, and he was born in a manger. Why does he emphasize this so much? Most people think it doesn't really matter whether Jesus was born in a manger, whether he was born of a virgin. He says that what's great about the birth of Christ um, is that this, basically it's a very inspiring story about God's love. And so what it teaches me is that I should live a life of love. I should live a life of hope and goodness and generosity. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, um, whether Jesus truly is the deity incarnate, uh, whether he was born of a virgin. Just be a good person. That's basically what he's saying here. 
God came to be a great example. He came, he was born humble in a manger. Sure, live a good life. That's basically the essence of the story. That's exact, exactly what this text is speaking against. <laughs> to say that those things don't matter, and that all that matters is that you live a good life, what you're really saying here, you know, verses 4 and 5, it's counter to verses 4 and 5. You're actually not surrendering the gear. You're actually putting it on. Because what you're really saying, and that's a doctrine. What's a doctrine? A doctrine is a statement full of assumptions about God, assumptions about life, assumptions about sin and human nature, how to connect with God. What, if you were to counter that, verses 4 and 5, you were to say, no, what this whole text means, that Jesus being born into the world, it just means to live a good life. What you're really saying is what every other religion says about how to connect with God. Lots of miracle stories in every religion. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, every single one of them have miracle stories. They're all stories about things that happened in their lives that's valuable to teach us about our lives, teaches us to, to be an example. In every other religion, whether or not those things actually happened to Buddha or to Muhammad or to Confucius, mainly what they're saying is salvation is completely dependent on you. Completely dependent on you living out the teachings that result. The story doesn't matter. It's the teaching that matters. And at the end of the day, you have to live it out. Here's how you have to live, and you will be saved if you do it. Christianity, verses 4 and 5 and on, exactly the opposite. In every other religion, they're saying, it's what you do. In every other religion, it's saying, it's what you give that saves you. Christianity says, it's what Jesus does. It's what Jesus gave that saves. You are a child of the king. That's what matters. It's not what you give. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You are a child of the king. It's what you received. You're a sinner saved by grace. You've received access to God. Unto us, a child has been given. Unto us, a child has been given. For us, a child was born. The reason that Jesus was born, the reason why Jesus lived, the reason why he died on the cross, is because you know, Christianity, he wasn't just born. He was born for us. He didn't just live a life like Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad. He lived a life for us. He didn't just die like those other martyrs. He died for us. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. He died as our representative. Every other religion says you are saved by what the teacher tells you to, live, to do. But Christianity says you are saved by what the Savior has done. Every other religion says you are saved by what your teacher has said. Christianity says you are saved by what the Savior has done. Jesus became a child. Why? He came to be weak. He came to be vulnerable. He came to be disowned. That's why he had to be a child. He came as a child so that on the cross he could be disowned by God, his own father. On the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is he doesn't even call God his father. The only place in the Gospels, the only place in the Bible where where Jesus does not call God his father. He says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. I'm I'm not your son anymore. I've been disowned. On the cross, he suffered the ultimate darkness. You know that on the cross, a storm came? 
darkness enveloped the entire area. There were earthquakes that were so bad that tombs were opening up. And in that darkness, in the storm, Jesus stand tall, hung up on the cross to brave the entire wrath of God. And on there he's saying, I have been forsaken. I am now suffering the ultimate darkness. I am the light of life, and yet I'm suffering the ultimate darkness. Why did he do that? He did it for you. He did it for us. He did it for me. At Gethsemane, he's praying to God, knowing the next day everything that he's going to suffer, he's going to suffer at God's hand. God is going to pour out all of his wrath in totality onto his son so that not an ounce of his anger would be left to be, to be for his people. It would be all absorbed by Christ. And knowing that, what does he say? My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. When Jesus died, he died twice. He died at Gethsemane because he thought about everything that he was going to suffer and there he was overwhelmed. Why? Because the shadow of death was looming over him and he feared. And do you know that even though he did that, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He demonstrated the ultimate courage. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not a single complaint. He was still calling God his God. He was still worshiping on the cross, braving all the elements, braving all the wrath. And yet, God was still his God, never once wavered. Full, total courage. That's what he did. Why did he do that? He did it so we could have courage. You know, if the gospel is just this beautiful story about how you should live your life, it's not that beautiful. If the gospel is intended to be this inspiring story, it's not that inspiring because you will never live like that. You would never be able to live like that on your own. That truth would crush you. It would not be inspiring. It would be uninspiring. It would be discouraging. It would be depressing. You'd never live up to it. But if it really happened, if Jesus was born for us, if the king has come for us, if the king lived for us, all other kings make you live for him. But Jesus comes as a king to live for us and die for us and pay our debts. Then it's good news. The gospel means good news. If you're still trying to serve your king by doing and giving on your own so you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven, that's not good news. That's terrible news. Because you'll never live up to that. But why is the gospel good news? It's because the king has come to live and die for us. And that means that light can come into our lives and only if you understand it to be a gift. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing that qualifies you. There's nothing that qualifies you. The only thing that makes you eligible is that you are weak, that you are vulnerable, that you are broken. The greater you come, you know, when the gospel comes into your life, when Christ comes into your life, you know. Because the first thing that happens is you become overwhelmed with a sense of your brokenness. And you can become more open about your brokenness. All my life, as an Asian American growing up, we are brought up, taught to hide our brokenness. The brokenness is shameful. In some cultures, the brokenness is so, there are particular types of brokenness that are so shameful that you have to leave the community. So when you're brought up in that type of society, in that type of culture, there's no good news. There's no greater news than knowing that you have been free, that you are just as accepted as anyone who's lived the best of lives. You know why? Because the person who lived the greatest life 
came and value, valued you enough to die for you, to actually take your brokenness, to take your place. You're free from the power of that brokenness. Today, most of us, many of us are still living out the brokenness of the past. We've committed things in the past that are so egregious in our lives, we can't shake it. We can't get rid of it. And so as a result, that shadow of death continues to loom over our lives. That's not good news. Because that will make you live a life constantly trying to overcome and outdo or maybe even you know, re- absolve yourself. You're never going to do it. Like in Macbeth, you know, he can't wash his hands of the stain of guilt. He says, out, damn spot, out. He says, I can't. Not all the perfumes of Arabia will be able to sweeten my sinful hands. That's what he says. The gospel is good news, but only if you understand that it's received as a gift. You, don't, you didn't deserve it. You receive it. And when you receive a gift, what do you do? You open it. You open up the box and you see all the blessing that's inside. So with the remaining time that I have, what are the implications? Three very quick things. One, these are amazing. There's four things, but we already talked about mighty God. So let's talk about the names. First, the gospel, well, I'm just going to say all three in case I run out of time. Okay? One, the gospel gives us access. Two, it gives us meaning. Three, it gives us feelings. Restored access, restored meaning in life, restored feelings. Okay? You don't have to be afraid of any three of those things. If you understand Jesus and understand you take him in, receive him as a gift, first, the gospel restores access. The teaching of the king that has come, who's born in the manger as a baby. Why did he come as a baby? Because Isaiah here calls him the everlasting father. It's an irony. He says, for to us a child is born. This, this king, this redeemer will come as a baby, but he is the everlasting father. Why does he use the word father? Because even though he's a king, what is this telling us? God wants us to be close. He wants intimacy with us. That's not just a concept, God wanting to be intimate with us. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his brothers. That's the last prayer he prays before he dies. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says, he's everlasting father. He will be there forever. In John chapter 4, he says, I am your lover. In John chapter 10, he says, I am your shepherd. Why did Jesus come as an, in a manger as a child? You know why? It's because kings are intimidating, but babies are intimate. You can't help but be intimate with a child. That's what he needs. What other religion gives us a God that comes to earth and becomes so human we could kill him? We could relate with him and then we could kill him. This is a Jesus that says to a woman, with all these people bumping up against him, in Mark chapter 5, he turns around and says, you've touched me. You've, You've been healed because of your faith. This is a Jesus who comes to a child who's dead in her bed, died in her bed at the age of 12, comes up to her and says, little child, get up. It's time for breakfast. They fed her. Who cries on the cross and says, I've been forsaken. I've lost intimacy. Why? So you could have intimacy. You could have access. You can have a personal relationship with God. If God came into the world, into the world to be real with you, you can be real with him. You can be personal with him. I'm willing to bet there's not a single person in this room that has skeptical views of God. I'm willing to bet you, 
you haven't been intimate with him. You're going to be skeptical about people that you're not intimate with. You're going to distrust people you're not intimate with. I'm going to bet you any question that you've got about God begins with a lack of intimacy. Number two, it restores meaning and purpose. Look at how many times or how many places, not just here, but in the Bible, the word peace shows up. Here, he's the prince of peace. He's not just a mighty God. He's not just an everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Of the increase of government and his peace, there will be no end. When modern people think of peace, they think about inner calm, inner peace, inner stability. But the word is much deeper than that. The word is shalom. It's a Jewish word. If you know anything about the Jewish, I grew up uh, in a Jewish, practically a Jewish high school and went to a Jewish college, an all-Jewish college, virtually. I went to Brandeis. So, so my friends in high school um, gave me, a, they called me Chostein, they called me Choberg, you know, because uh, I, I, all my friends were Jewish, you know. Um, so Jesus, he's a, I, know, I understand the word shalom. Jesus is the prince of shalom. It carries much greater depth and meaning than just inner calm. There's this absolute wholeness and thriving and flourishing. Jerusalem was the city. Jerusalem is a city of Jerusalem. It's a city of peace. The city of God is a city of peace. Out of heaven comes the new Jerusalem, a new city of peace that will rest on our lives and we will be at one with God in peace. What is this peace? It's this other flourishing, absolute prosperity. You know what that means? That right now, when the child has come here, everything in your material life matters today. It matters. Christianity does not negate that your salary matters. That's why we tithe. Clearly, your salary matters. Clearly, your work matters. Christianity is not the dismissal of your work and material things. It's putting them in the right place. You don't honor it on one hand. You don't glorify it on one hand. But it matters. It's what God uses and works through. Jesus himself became material. God became material. So the world matters. Things in life matter. But what it means is this. Peace on earth means that where there's poverty, there will one day be prosperity. Where there's death, there will be life. Where there's sickness, there will be redemption. Where there's hunger, you're going to be satisfied. Where there's thirst, you will be quenched. You get what I'm saying here? Where there's alienation, you're going to get access. If you're unhappy, you will have an inner poise, an inner calm, an inner peace. Why? God received the body. He came into the material world. The gospel is this. God, the gospel is not we all escape the material world into nothingness. The gospel is God came into a very, very bad place, into a very, very bad neighborhood, and was killed by very, very bad people. That's the gospel. But he didn't come just to have that done. He came to rehab it. When he said the kingdom has come, he was proclaiming. What was he proclaiming? He was fulfilling prophecy of the kingdom that will come and restore everything that's broken in the world, including you. God is working right now in your suffering, in your brokenness, in that crappy job that you're in, in the hardships of your work and life, in the oppression that you experience every day, 
I sit, and every day, most of my life, if I look at just, if I break my life down into its incremental pieces, most of the things incrementally by themselves are meaningless. There is no joy or meaning in filling out a spreadsheet and punching in numbers. There's nothing meaningful about that. But God put you there to do that, didn't he? The kingdom has come to that spreadsheet. And when the kingdom comes to that spreadsheet, it could mean several things. One, you will do it with integrity. Two, you will do it with quality. Three, you will do it with the character of the kingdom. You're going to redeem it. So other people will have broken spreadsheets. You will fix it up. And it will be better because it's you. It will be more lively because it's you. It will be prettier because it's you. It will be done with with the full weight of the kingdom of God in that little spreadsheet. Some of you guys are, forget it, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say something, but you get the point, right? You get the point. Your service matters. Your work matters. Your character today matters. Your lifestyle today matters. Lastly, the gospel restores our feelings He calls him the wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Wonder, to wonder, is to be curious of the beauty of something with joy. That's what wonder means. That's my definition of wonder. I'm trying to explain to you the Hebrew definition of wonder. It's very, very packed. It's to be be curious about something that is beautiful with joy. It's telling us that the gospel means that Jesus is not just something that's distant out there, but beautiful in here. It's going to fill you with joy if you let him in. If you open up that gift and let him in, that's what it's going to do. I'm telling you, if you are a skeptic today, it's because you haven't opened the gift. If you don't open a gift, it's just a package. And sometimes packages, when I get packages from Amazon and and Zappos and all these other places. It's, the, it's a crappy, beat-up looking box. I don't know what's inside. You know, it could be a bomb block here. <laughs> I don't know what's inside. So it just sits there on my desk. The beauty is within. You receive it. You open it up. James Montgomery Boyce used to say when, he, when preaching Romans, you have to appropriate the gift. You've got to use it. That's when you realize how beautiful it is. Fills us with joy. You know what a friend is? You know, a wonderful counselor. A counselor is a friend, right? A counselor is not a preacher. A counselor is not a teacher. A counselor is a friend. A wonderful, a beautiful friend. The job of a friend is what? An intimate friend. A friend is intimate. So what's the job of a friend? It's to take a person's heart that's broken or that's empty, and their job is to heal it and fill it with truth and love. If you just fill it with love it's going to go away. If you just fill it with truth, they're going to go away. But if you fill it with truth and love, it's going to result in joy. It's going to result in healing. Some of us out here are trying desperately to emotionally invest in people because you're needy. And others of you here are desperately trying to get away from people, right? Because you're afraid of committing. You're afraid of disappointing. You're afraid of giving. But what if, regardless of the circumstance, what if 
There's a subterranean river of joy that takes care of the fear. The fear that drives you towards neediness or the fear that drives you towards self-reliance. What if there's a river of joy underneath all that? What if you have a wonderful counselor speaking into your life all the time, able to remind you of the things that you've done, but able to remind you of what he's done, able to remind you, there you go, you're working again. You're trying so hard to get love. There's love. Open up the gift again and see. Reminding you of your value. Reminding you and filling you because that's what's going to heal you regardless of the circumstances. Then you're not going to overly invest in somebody because of your neediness, because of your emptiness. And you're not going to overly withdraw from people because of your self-reliance, right? You can actually feel for people. You can actually have compassion for people because it's not about you. It stops being about what you need and what you want. It's about what you can give. It means that you can be vulnerable because it's not about your ability and it's not about your competence. You can actually be vulnerable about your brokenness. You know, when you have a friend, two people come together and they're, they're vulnerable about their brokenness and they're pouring into each other, not out of neediness, you know what happens? You become very, you start to feel. You start to enjoy The beauty of relationship is there, and God uses that to bring redemption to you. Get in the community groups, will you? God uses that to bring joy into your life, to heal you. If God uses Jesus, the greatest picture of beauty, to become ultimately broken and uses that brokenness to fill the hearts of many, you don't think that he will use you? How do you think he's going to use your life? He's going to use you through your brokenness. You say, you know, Donnie, I, I'm very, very, I have a lot of gifts. I have a lot of talent. I have a lot to give. I don't understand why God's not using me. You know why? It's because you're not broken. You're trying to come with might. That's very counter to the gospel. Will you come with your brokenness? That's how God, some of you are saying, I don't get it. You know, it used to work. I used to influence a lot of people. You know, I'm very talented. I'm very intelligent. Now, I feel like it's not working. I'm not happy with where I am. You know why? It's because you're not broken. You're not weak. This week, will you remember the gospel that heals and the gospel that fills and the gospel that saves you so you could stop trying to save yourself and stop trying to save other people Will you just submit to the love of our mighty God, everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace? Will you remember that? Let's pray.